Lord, what a privilege it is uh, to gather together with your people and to open your word and, and uh, you know, to learn your word, to study your word, um, and in this case, to learn how to read and how to study that, um, that we might know you truly, uh, that we might rightly divide the word of truth. And, and not just to, to know it rightly, but um, to be transformed by what we read. Uh, we know that uh, your word is the vehicle by which you do so much transformative work in our life. And therefore, to, to know the scripture and, and to read it and to apply it is, is so crucial um, to a walk with you. So thank you for these dear brothers and sisters that we can do this together. Thank you for the team of guys that's um, agreed to, to do this class with me. And uh, we just thank you and, and pray for um, just an incredible time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, some of you have heard my testimony, but uh, I became a Christian in college. And up until that time, there was very few things that I um, read. I, I did not like reading. I, I was the guy that uh, would read the back cover and try to do the book report in college from the back cover without actually reading the book because I didn't want to read the book. Um, I actually threw a uh, Charles Dixon, Dickens book across the family room growing up because uh, I was just so put off by it. And, and uh, so that was me, right? And the, the DOS man, I did read the DOS manual one time. Um, Half of you don't know what that is. Ask your parents or grandparents or a geek that's older than 40. And, um, but, um, but one of the things that happened when I became a Christian is almost overnight, I had an incredible desire to know the Word of God and to study the Word of God and to read it. And, and that, that started my junior year of college. And, and from that point to today, um, being in the Bible, reading the Bible has been... Uh, just one of the highlights of of every day, every week, and um, and learning that, learning to read the Bible, learning to study the Bible is is a skill. It's like anything else. Um, it's a unique book. The Scripture is, um, but nonetheless, we we have to learn. Um, we we have to learn how to read and how to interpret and how to apply, and uh, and that's really the goal of what we're going to uh, to try to do here. Um, Jesus said, uh, you know, in Matthew chapter four. Uh, responding to the devil's temptation, he said this, quoting the Old Testament, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, I want to ask you how many times you ate today. Um, but if that's the comparison that we should be in the word of God as it compared to the bread, the food that we put into our bodies, that, that means that we should be nourishing ourselves on the rich spiritual word of God as our um, our spiritual food, even as we need physical food. So uh, with that in mind, I, I, I hope that uh, learning this and doing this class will be helpful to you. So let's talk a little bit about what we're going to do. Uh, just some goals here. Uh, these are not on your notes. Actually, these are, in the, I think, in the syllabus. But um, And uh, so we moved the PowerPoint co- the, from one computer to another, and sometimes that messes up the format. So that's probably smaller. But um, none of you have taken the front row, so um, you can. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Roger did. No, Roger was smart there. He's got his gla- he's got his glasses off. See, he doesn't need it because he's a. So I'm sorry, Roger. Thank you for being a, a front row uh, believer there. So what are we trying to do? Obviously, we we want to know God better and become more like Christ. 
learning to study the Bible is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. And the means is to know God himself and to become more like Christ through our growing in that skill. We want to learn the skill of reading the scripture properly, learn the skill of interpreting the scripture accurately, and learning the skill of applying the scripture faithfully. And all of those are important, reading, interpreting, and applying. Um, the, the goal is not to be uh, PhDs in theology, to know lots of stuff. The goal is to be transformed by what we're doing. A couple of, um, this is Grace Bible Institute, a little bit different than Sunday school. And um, we're going to take you to college. And so, so here's kind of here's my challenge. If you want the full immersion experience, I would suggest you get the textbooks, you do the assignments I'm going to give you, and, and you try to keep up, okay? It'll be a little bit of work, but it will be well worth it. Uh, we're also allowing some of you to, quote-unquote, audit the class, which means you sit in here and we, we, we interact together, but you don't necessarily get the books, you don't necessarily do the assignments. I won't be um, grading what you do, anything like that. So, uh, but, but you're not going to get as much out of it, right, if you only just come and listen. And uh, so... If you want to do this, there's gonna, we're going to use two books. Uh, the, the main book we're going to use is called Grasping God's Word. This is a book on how to interpret the Bible. It's one of the best. Um, I developed a class for a seminary last year, and I went through about 12 of these type of books that are available and trying to figure out strengths and weaknesses. I think this was one of the top ones. And um, so that's, that's the one we're going to use as sort of the, we're going to follow the outline of that book. And then How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth will sort of supplement that. As you can see, this is a lot smaller. This is a more just about reading the Bible and reading the different types of books, whereas this is more presenting a, a, a guide to actually study the Bible, a, a process to follow, if you will. And check this out. For, uh, I think it's 9 or $10.00. You can get the Cliff's Notes. And some of you don't know who Cliff is because you're too young. Again, ask your mom and dad. But uh, this, this is just an outline of the book. And it's just, it's just one page, sort of front and back, laminated. And it's got all of the details on one page. So if you say, ah, I'm not sure I want to take the plunge, but I'd like to kind of you know, cheat a little bit, you can get one of these. And um, uh, Brianna, you'll definitely want to get one of these too because this is real helpful. So um, $5.00. $25, and I think these are 10 something like that. If you want a book, we've got a bunch of these. We've got a great deal on for $5. They're over there, and uh, you can just take one and, and drop 5 bucks in the book box downstairs. Um, these, you need to sign up over there, and Lacey's going to order some, and we'll have them for you before next Monday. Okay, But that's what we're going to do. Uh, the assignments are all in the Grasping God's Word book, so if you want to follow along in that way, uh, you'll want to do that. Now, um, learning to read and interpret Scripture, the Bible, is like learning to wakeboard. Now, we have a wakeboarding uh, poster man for Grace Bible Church. Did you know that? We have a, a wakeboarding poster man, and his name is Roger Recksteiner, who is the only one sitting in the front row. Did you notice that? Um, and and uh, Roger kindly gave me the permission to... Actually, he sent me this picture and, and gave me permission to show it to you. Now, if you've never seen Roger, this, this, he, he, is, he is a kid in a candy store when he's out on his boat in the water. Awesome. And uh, I don't know how many years ago, Roger, it was that he kindly invited uh, our family uh, to go out. And he said, hey, we got this new wakeboard and we don't know how to use it yet. 
maybe you can try it out, right? That was what, was that 10 years ago or eight years ago? And uh, it's like, okay, and I, I, I'm can slalom ski, not very well, but I grew up doing that. And so, you know, you strap the thing on and you jump in the water. I don't know how many times I, I biffed it trying to get, eventually got up, right? Kind of trying to figure it up and kind of get out there and um, kind of, you know, work your way through that. And, um, and then I think the next year he says, oh, we found these videos. And, um, and, and if you know anything about Roger, great instructor, and uh, so we watch the videos in the living room and they kind of go through the thing there and then we go out in the water and we try it, right? And then after you try it a couple times, you know, boom, you know, and he comes back around and then he gives instructions and feedback, okay? So learning to read and interpret the Bible is like learning to wakeboard. You can do it like I did it where you just jump in the water and try to figure it out. And that doesn't go so well, does it? But if you get some instruction... And then you go and you try it, and then you get some feedback. That's a better way to learn, isn't it? Okay, so that's that's how we're going to do this class. If you just come and listen and read the books, that's like just watching the videos on how to wakeboard. You can sit in your living room and watch hours on how to wakeboard. That doesn't make you a wakeboarder. It makes you knowledgeable about some things. But at some point, you have to do what? You got to strap on and jump in the water and you got to try it. And that's why you need to do some assignments. That's why you need to, um, uh, uh, when you're reading your Bible during the week, just reading your Bible, you're applying some of the things that we're learning. Okay. You can't just learn how to do it. You got to jump in the water and actually practice it. And then what we're going to do as instructors, as we're teaching and as you're trying, we're going to give you feedback so that you can grow and improve just like. Roger's always given us feedback on the wakeboard. I thought that's a great example because how many of our high school students have you taught to wakeboard in the last 10 years? I mean, dozens of our high schools. We have our, some of our high school students, right? You guys have all learned how to wakeboard there. So, um, so anyway, so thank you, Roger, for being our illustration tonight. I think that, does it, did it work? Do you think it works? Yeah. Okay. All right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Roger, Roger, I told him to bring a pen because people might want an autograph. So, uh, so there you go. Okay, uh, it's like learning how to wakeboard. Now, um, one of the things we, we start off with in, in the Grasping God's Word book is not, okay, here's the process and here's we're gonna, how to do it, but they start off talking about how we got the English Bible. Now, this is important because all, I see most of you have a Bible there. That's good that you brought a Bible to a how to read and interpret the Bible class. That's good. It's not in our required textbooks because I assumed you would know that. Uh, but um, you understand that what you're holding in your hands is something that most generations of Christians didn't have. I mean, this is really an invention of the last hundred years, maybe, maybe a little more than that. To have your own Bible, to have it in your own language, to have it on an electronic device, you pull it up, oh, here's 900, well, not, maybe not 900, here's 90 versions of the Bible right here on my fingertips, right? That that's a relatively new thing, that, that most Christians throughout church history would only hear the Bible when they went to church. There was maybe one Bible, they used to, they used to have it on the pulpit, it was chained to the pulpit so no one would run off with it. And the pastor or priest would, would teach it, and it was a very oral thing. It was, a, it was an auditory thing. So re- learning to read the Bible individually is a relatively new sort of thing for Christians. Um, but knowing something of the history 
is going to help us not just appreciate how blessed we are to have our own copy, but it's also going to give you some knowledge on how and why we're going to approach Bible reading the way we do. Um, you're, does anybody know, what are you actually reading there? What, like, what's between those leather covers? Talk to me here. What, like, what is that that you have on, on the desk there? It is God's Word. Okay, very good. Great. It's a translation. It's a, it's a version. And uh, what else do we know about it? It comes in large print. Isn't that awesome? I can leave my reading glasses at home. Uh, praise God for, for large print Bibles. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, did you? Yeah. Okay. Written by different people. Okay. Different. You mentioned letters. Uh, are there? Are, is the Bible all letters? What else? History. History. Okay. Prophecy. Poetry. A lot of different authors. Eyewitness accounts. Inspired by God. <laughs> maps. Yeah, they're so they're thankful. They're thankful the editor put some maps in there for those of us that failed ancient Near Eastern geography. Uh, yeah. Right. Okay. So, so we've got a book written over. Okay, written by about forty different human authors, all inspired by God. Okay, different genres. Different and genre just means type of book. So, reading narrative, a story, is different than reading the Proverbs, for example. And um, so, what you have in that cover is a um, a, a book of books written over a large period of time by different people, different types of books that's in a translation, right? We're not reading the original. And, and even what that translation is based on is not one copy, but many copies. And from those many copies, uh, scholars determine what, what was likely the original, Right? So, so there's, there's all sorts of stuff here to consider. And, and so again, um, the, the history here, we'll spend a little bit of time on this because I think it's interesting and I also think it helps you to appreciate what it is we're trying to do. Okay? And again, sorry, the, the picture should be a little bit lower there. So hopefully this won't be uh, too bad. So does anybody know what that is? It is a scroll. It is Hebrew. And uh, it's probably too small, David, for you to figure that out there, um, you, you may have a little bit of a hint just look, looking at the size of it because there are very few scrolls in that particular Hebrew script that we have that are that big. This is the great Isaiah scroll from the Dead Sea scrolls that were discovered in 1947. Uh, so the big scrolls, right? And, and that was probably representative of what uh, the original writings looked like, at least in some cases. So how do we go from that to this? Okay, um, to a, a printed Bible in a nice leather cover with maps in the back, right? Um, so let's talk about this. The, the autographs, not the autograph you're going to get from Roger later, not that type of autograph, but, but the name is similar. The autographs refer to the original writings of Scripture. The Old Testament... Those 39 books were completed about 400 B.C. The New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament, were completed about 95 or 100 A.D. And those originals or autographs of the scriptures have never been recovered. 
Okay, and probably most of you know that, but uh, we don't have the exact letter that Paul wrote or the exact uh, uh, prophecy of Isaiah or something like that. What we do have are reliable copies of each book that ensure we have an accurate record of the biblical writings. Um, as I mentioned, that, that big scroll I showed you a moment ago, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, again, founded in, found, uh, discovered in 1947, those scrolls confirm that we have reliable copies of the Old Testament text in Hebrew. That was the language of the Old Testament with a little bit of Aramaic, which was a, a sister language. And then we also have a vast number of Greek manuscripts of the New Testament that confirm that we have reliable copies of the New Testament text. Now, we're, gonna, we're not going to get into what's called textual criticism, which is, you know, how do we know the manuscripts are accurate? There are some that are different, so what do we do with that? But suffice it to say that that whole discipline demonstrates that we have a very reliable um, manuscript family behind our English versions that we can be confident of its accuracy. Uh, by the way, so as I'm going through this, you stop and ask questions, okay? And then I'll let David Gibson ask those questions. Uh, so I'll defer to David. Uh, by the way, um, uh, I am grateful to be sharing the teaching responsibility with Lee and David Gibson and Pastor Terry. So we're going to kind of tag team this since we all love uh, uh, the subject. And uh, hopefully that'll give you some variety as well. So in terms of a timeline, how do we go from that picture I showed you, those original you know, what, what would have been the original version to English. So we got 400 BC, the Hebrew Old Testament is completed. Um, before we get to the New Testament, something happens in 250 BC, the Greek Septuagint or Septuagint. Uh, how many have heard that before? Okay. Did you, do you know what that is? What? It's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And, and the reason, uh, often you'll see this symbol LXX. Does anybody read Roman numerals? Yeah, the L is 50, X is 10, it's twice, so that, that's 20, so 50 plus 20 is 70. Anybody know why the um, abbreviation for the Septuagint would be the Roman numeral 70? Yeah, the, 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 the thinking, and we don't know this for sure, but the tradition says that the, this, this version was translated by 70 scholars, which is why it's abbreviated like that. So what we're looking at in this is a... A Hebrew Old Testament translated into Greek so that Jews who did not know the Hebrew could read the Old Testament. And uh, so, again, history suggests there were 70 scholars involved that did that. Okay? Um, And interestingly, uh, many times when the New Testament writers cite the Old Testament, they're not citing from the Hebrew version. They're citing from the Greek version, the Septuagint version. So we know that that was in circulation to some degree in the first century when the New Testament was being written. So um, there's a picture. Um, I don't know if you can see that. Uh, some of you picked up some Greek in math classes, so maybe, or maybe you were part of a fraternity or sorority and you had to learn the Greek alphabet, and so you might be able to pick out some of that. What, what do you notice? There's two things to notice looking at that. Um, I think I know, probably most of you can't read that, but just looking at the letters, anything... Interesting to you, other than their different colors? What's that? There's no punctuation, that's correct. They're all capital letters. And no spaces between, there you go. These are called unseals. 
uh, m- many of our Greek manuscripts are written in all capital letters with no spaces between them. And you're thinking, well, how on earth do they read them? Well, it's amazing what the human brain can do. Uh, you know, if, if you've ever written an email and you forgot to put a space in, you probably noticed it, right? Because uh, your brain can pick out, hey, th- that word needed to end there. There needed to be a space. So that was a normal way of reading. Okay, so back to our timeline, uh, the Hebrew Old Testament, 400 B.C., the Greek Septuagint, 250, 100 A.D., the Greek New Testament is completed. And then uh, a few centuries later, the Latin Vulgate. How many of you guys have heard about the Vulgate? Okay, uh, the Vulgate was a translation, actually a series of translations into Latin. Uh, Jerome was um, a person involved in that um, Sophronius, Eusebius, Hieronymus. That's why we call him Jerome, because no one can remember all that. Uh, 382 AD, and uh, he was commissioned by the Bishop of Rome to um, revise an old Latin text. Uh, As early as the 3rd century, there were some copies of the scriptures floating around in Latin. And uh, that revision by Jerome... Uh, completed around 405 AD was known as the Vulgate. And, and this was, this was the Bible of the church for centuries. And, uh, some of you know some Latin. Maybe you've, uh, read, um, uh, parts of the Vulgate. But, uh, again, you know, look, look similar to those unseals, uh, the Greek ones that we, we saw a moment ago. Um, but that, that was the Bible of the church for many generations. Uh, today there are 8,000 known Vulgate manuscripts. Uh, it was the only translation through the Middle Ages. Uh, but what happened over the years was Latin became very, very corrupt, especially in that time. And this is interesting. There was a scholar in 1490 who had access to some Greek Greek Bible, right? And after reading the Gospels in Greek, and then he reads the Latin Vulgate, he said this, either this, the original Greek, is not the Gospel, or we are not Christians, meaning there was enough corruption in the Latin text that um, it, it, it was so you know, corrupted away from the gospel that reading it in Greek, the guy concluded either, either this is wrong or we're not Christians because what we've been believing is that, that distorted from what his Greek gospels were telling him. So that gives you an idea of kind of where things were at uh, coming, in, coming out of the Middle Ages there. So the next thing to happen was Wycliffe. You guys have heard John Wycliffe? I didn't know this. I preached in a church a week ago Sunday in Rugby, England, kind of northwest of, of London, uh, a couple hours car ride. And just a few miles away was the church uh, where Wycliffe, um, I, think it was, I don't know if it was where he was burned at the stake or um, where he did a lot of his work, but uh, it's considered uh, one of those uh, historic sites um, as it relates to Wycliffe's translation. Um, he was an Oxford professor. I spent a lot of time in Oxford the last couple of weeks. Uh, largely opposed the established English church. So around 1380, he began translating the Bible into English from Latin. Now, let me ask you this. Why would an English Bible be a threat to the established church that only used the Latin Bible? Okay. Yeah, yeah, nobody spoke Latin except, you know, the, the, the priests. And what were you guys going to say? That's right. You can read it in their own language. Yeah, and, and, and you know, not, not that having pastors and scholars, and, and, and that's a good thing to have people that are experts in that, 
But what happened was keeping the Bible from the people, at least at that time in history, led to a lot of corruption in terms of what people uh, were believing and how the church was controlling the narrative in that way. Uh, Wycliffe finished the Old Testament, 1380. He began working on the New Testament but died. And uh, his work was completed by a colleague in 1388. That's a a Wycliffe Bible there. Um, This is is true. This is actually true. The Pope was so angry by Wycliffe's translation that 44 years after Wycliffe died, he ordered his bones to be dug up, crushed, and scattered in the river. Uh, That's that's the level of threat that uh, this Bible caused in the established church. Okay? And, yes, yep. So you said when the guy read the Latin Vulgate, he said, either we're not Christians because they read the Greek. Mm-hmm. So this translation he made came from the Latin Vulgate. Right. Right. By bad right. So this English version would have carried with it whatever errors were in the Vulgate. That's true. And that's why what Tyndall does in the next century is so significant. Okay. And then something happens that's going to change this whole story. Because up until this time, everything is copied by hand until a man named Gutenberg, Gutenberg, yes, um, he invents, what does he invent that, that revolutionizes everything? The printing press, very good. What's the first book that he printed? Do you know? It was a Latin Vulgate, that's right. And um, so around 1439... Uh, he was a blacksmith. He invented the oops, sorry, typo there, first movable type printing press. And in 1455, he produced the first printed Bible, uh, an edition of the Latin Vulgate. Um, they, they think um, years ago, I went on a, a went to a, a museum, and they had what they think was something like the printing press that Gutenberg had invented. They think they took a wine press and sort of converted it, and um, so that, that's a possibility. And um, so this version is called a Gutenberg Bible. Um, there are a few that still exist, believe it or not. It's beautiful. It's got colors in it. And um, I've got somewhere I've got a facsimile page of one of those. Okay, so that, that revolutionizes everything. That, that, by the way, that's how you can tell it's a, a Gutenberg is the, this little color um, heading at the top. There are two columns. So that changes everything. Now books are going to be able to start to be printed. It's slow, it's expensive, it's not widely spread yet, but it's the start. 1516, Erasmus, what does he do? He prints the first Greek New Testament based on manuscripts that were available. Um, actually, the first one he did was a diglot. It was Latin on one side, Greek on the other side. And um, his Latin text was original, it was not uh, Jerome's Vulgate. It was his own translation of the Greek. And it was Erasmus's Greek New Testament that allowed Martin Luther the ability to translate the Bible into German, uh, which he did, remember, when he was tucked away in uh, uh, the attic of the um, castle um, when he was running from his life, for his life there. Um, so this is this is the diglot, and again, if you I don't know if some of you can see this, but uh, this would be the Latin text right here. This is the Greek text called a diglot, or two two uh, glosses, two languages. Okay, is this interesting? Okay, we're going somewhere here because you've got Wycliffe makes the first effort at an English Bible. 
Gutenberg invents the printing press. Erasmus produces the first uh, printed edition of a Greek New Testament. And now that sets the stage for William Tyndale. Uh, he was an English scholar, the first man to print the scriptures in English. Uh, he printed the New Testament first. And uh, you might say, well, what, what drove this? I mean, you know, translating the Bible is a big thing to do. This, this is a, a famous quote. He, he said to, in response to a Catholic scholar who asked, why are you doing this? He said, if God spare my life uh, mere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than thou dost. And what was he saying? He said he wanted the commoner to un- be able to understand the scripture. Um, and that's what drove that desire. And um, it was dangerous because it exposed lies and errors of the established Catholic Church. English officials confiscated it, burned every copy they can find. He was strangled and then burned in 1536 for the crime of translating the Bible into English. Um, there's a, a, a Tyndall page there. Uh, and there's a, a woodcut of him being strangled. And, um, of course, he, he's, history records that he, his final words were, O Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And it was just three years later following his death that King Henry III not just allowed but funded the printing of an English Bible known as the Great Bible. Um, so God was kind to answer Mr. Tyndall's prayer and, uh, and bring that about. There's a lot more history in the book, so I'm skipping a lot. If, 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 you're, if you're nerding out on this and just eating this up, then there's some really good books that will fill in a lot of detail here that you might be interested in. Okay. Um, 1535, Miles Coverdale, a follower of Tyndale, translates the Old Testament using Luther's German translation and the Vulgate sources. Together with Tyndale's New Testament, he publishes the first complete English Bible. Remember, Tyndale didn't, didn't finish. Um, so Coverdale comes along and completes uh, Tyndale's work by adding an Old Testament, not from the Hebrew, but from German and, and Latin, uh, to bring that in. So here we have uh, Coverdale's complete English Bible. And then uh, another man, his actually name is John Rogers, but he went by the pseudonym Thomas Matthew uh, because he feared persecution. Another follower of Tyndale published an updated version of Tyndale and Coverdale in 1537. And though he had, he had secured the blessing of King Henry VIII, he wrote under that pseudonym, since his text was largely Tyndale's works and, and Tyndale had been condemned. By the way, are you guys too old for show and tell? No. Okay. I didn't think so. So I brought some show and tell. Um, this is a great Bible. This is a Matthews Bible, page from a Matthews Bible. And um, I've got several show and tell here. So when, when we break, you can come and look at that. Please leave them in the sleeves because these are 500 plus years old. And um, that's acid-free uh, materials there, archival materials, so that they don't damage the... But if you flip it over, it'll tell you what it is and when it was printed. Okay? So some of this, you can actually go see uh, what these look like. So um, I keep telling myself one of these days I'm going to frame all these and put them somewhere. And until then, they sit in a sleeve and then I bring them out for fun times like this so okay so so Rogers does this right and and the significance here is it's it's he's largely relying on Tyndale and Coverdale um, but uh, that's usually credited 
the, the, his work is usually credited as the first English transri- translation to be primarily translated from Greek and Hebrew. So Rogers went back and actually looked at the Hebrew, looked at the Greek. He was relying on Tyndale and Coverdale, but remember, um, uh, Coverdale had relied on Latin and German for the Old Testament, and uh, so he went back and, and looked at what was available in terms of Greek and Hebrew sources. Yes, but a lot of the phraseology, and you're going to see this, even some of the phraseology that are in our English Bibles today originated with Tyndale. So, yes, he went back, and he didn't start from scratch. It was more like he was cross-checking things. Uh, but that just tells you that, that Tyndale and Coverdale's work were largely reliable, even though they were working from uh, translations. Okay? So um, so there you go, there's a, a, a Matthew page, and the, the second one over there is a Matthew page, if you want to look at it from Deuteronomy. Uh, the Great Bible, at the request of King Henry VIII, Thomas Cramner, uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, hired Coverdale to publish the Great Bible. This was the first Bible, English Bible, authorized for public use. It was distributed to every church in England. And it was chained to the pulpit to ensure public access, right? We, we talked about that. Readers were even provided... Uh, readers were provided so that illiterate uh, people could hear God's word. So, so now, now the culture is changing a little bit, isn't it, in England? Uh, so there it is. Uh, this is obvious. This is a real Bible uh, with a, you know, a, a, what, what a uh, reading pulpit would have looked like today. You see the chain coming off of the Bible there. Um, and then we remember a change of political power in, in England. You remember the rise of so-called Bloody Mary and her, um, man, j- just um, disgust of and anger against uh, these reformers, these um, nonconformists. And uh, so this is where people had to start fleeing England. So they're fleeing to places like Geneva and surrounding areas. And there, other men come into the works, not English, but men from other surrounding countries like Calvin and Knox and John Fox from the Fox's Book of Martyrs that you've heard about. And uh, so they're all in exile, and they're desiring a Bible that will uh, represent their theology. And so, again, leaning on Tyndale, leaning on some of the earlier versions, they complete what's called a Geneva Bible. It was the first Bible to add numbered verses and chapters. It was also the first version to add study notes in the columns. You thought MacArthur was the first one to do that. That's not true. You thought the Thompson Chain reference. No, no, no. If you look, I have a couple of uh, Geneva Bibles here, and you know they're Geneva Bibles because there's study notes on the columns. Okay, so when you come look, look for those study notes there. And... Um, so significance, this is the Bible of the English Puritans and Reformers. This is the Bible that was brought to America by the pilgrims. Okay, and, and so this is, this is how the English Bible gets to the American continent. Yep. Uh, the Geneva Bible, was that an English translation? It was. It's English. That's correct. So they would have had Luther's Bible. Um, they would have had, you know, French versions by this time. But English, because they were they were seeking reform in England, where many of those people had fled from. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, they they were, uh, were thinking about England. They they would have been, um, you know, uh, pastors, uh, you know, Church of England, right? W- which was very similar to to the Roman Catholic Church, but had its own distinctions. So yeah, many. Yeah, yeah. Some of them were. Some of them were like like uh, um, uh, Wycliffe was a professor at Oxford, mm-hmm. right? So and some of them were priests in the in the Church of England. So um, it varied. But yeah, it was it was it was not an organized movement. It eventually became one. But um, anyway, so there's there's the Geneva Bible. A um, couple other things. Um, back in England, um, Queen Mary dies. The, the things change in England, and um, so now the Church of England is saying we need a Bible that corrects the horrible theology of the reformers in the Geneva Bible. So they immediately commission. Uh, a revision of the Great Bible called the Bishop's Bible. Look at this guy. The original large print Bible is right here, okay? Because that, that's the size of it. And, of course, that was the basis for the one that we all know, similar size, the 1611 King James Version. Um, this is not actually a 1611. If it was, I could not have afforded it. This is a 1613 printing of the 1611 um, King James. Okay, and then uh, there, there's a, a distinctly Catholic Bible that comes out in 1609 there, and um, and of course 1604 King James the uh, first is the one who commissions the uh, the King James version 1611. <laughs> this is interesting. Although they were they were retaliating against Geneva, and Geneva was largely re- leaning on Tyndale. You know, this is the new version, right? And yet it was 90% Tyndale's work. So William Tyndale really is the brainchild behind the modern English version. Okay, so there's some other ones there. Uh, some other ones, uh, kind of moving into the modern era, John Eliot prints the first Bible in America. It was an Indian version. Did you know that? Uh, who, okay, it's, it's on the board. Um, here, here, here's a um, double jeopardy category. This is, this is what you do at a party to stump your friends that are Christians. You ask them, what was the only Bible in American history to be commissioned by, commissioned and paid for by an act of Congress? And that was the Jonathan Aitken Bible, um, in 1782. Uh, really, really interesting. Um, there's a few of those still around actually for about $350. You can get a page from one of those. Um, in 1880, the English Revised Version, the American Standard Version in 1901. Our new American Standard is a revision of that, by the way. And then all sorts of versions here. You see them there. The Revised Standard, the New American Standard, the NIV, the King, New King James, New Revised Standard, New American Standard Version updated in 95, the English Standard Version, which is very popular, the New Living Translation, the Legacy, the NASB 2020, the Net Bible. Here's, here's again, this is the, the double jeopardy category. Modern versions of the Bible retain about 75 up to 90% of Tyndale's work. So the Bible you have on your desk is at least three quarters Tyndale in terms of its language and phraseology. Okay. Now, why do I tell you all this? One, it's interesting, I think. Two, you know something of where your version came from. But the English Bible is just a little over 500 years old. And certainly what we have today is uh, is really just, you know, really a hundred years old in terms of modern English Bibles. Now, how many have different Bibles at home, different versions at home, maybe different versions on your phone? 
Have you noticed that sometimes, do you ever do this when you're reading? You look at them and you go, well, the New American Standard says this, but the ESV says this. And then there's that New Living Bible, the, the, the New Living Translation. You go, and it's, it's like way over there. And, and then the Amplified Bible, it's, it's three miles down the road. And, and you're trying to make sense of all of this. Well, one of the things you, you need to, to recognize is that different versions have different philosophies. They serve different purposes. And part of learning to read the Bible and study the Bible, I would suggest, is reading in different translations. That, in fact, that's one of the best things you can do. Well, the best thing you can do to learn the Bible is read the Bible. The second best thing I think you can do is read the Bible in different versions. And note the comparisons, note the contrast, note the similarities, note the differences. And uh, we're going to look at that a little bit tonight. But there's, there's two main types of Bible versions. And um, in the book, there's actually a, a chart here. You've probably seen it before. Um, so the, the, the first type of Bible version is called a formal equivalent. That's sort of the the modern day way to do it. Sometimes back in, in years past, we would call them literal translations or word for word translations. And um, you say, what's that? Well, some Bible versions as a philosophy aim to follow the words and the structure of the original language as closely as possible. Okay, so Greek has a certain way that it does stuff. Hebrew has a certain way that it does sentence structure and the vocabulary there. And so um, versions that are done with a formal equivalent philosophy are trying to follow that structure and follow that vocabulary as closely as possible. So these are going to be versions like your King James, your New King James, your New American Standard, your ESV, your Holman Christian Standard. Um, th- those, those versions, those are kind of the popular ones today. Now, so, so the strength of that is they're following the words in the structure very close. The weakness is that it can come across really awkward because English sentence structure and Greek sentence structure and Hebrew sentence structure are very different. And so sometimes if you follow the structure from the Greek and Hebrew in English, it's very not natural. And sometimes maybe if you're reading in your New American Standard or your King James and you go, that's just, that's just not said very well. Well, that, that's not a, um, it, it's, it's a reality of the translation philosophy. So sometimes it can be awkward and, and sometimes it runs the risk of being unclear or inaccurate for the sake of form. In other words, in, in trying to follow that structure, sometimes it's, it can be misleading because it, 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 it might, it might uh, um, be a confusing in English and, and lead, read, lead to a different conclusion. Um, here, here's another way. Sometimes in these philosophies, they say, we're going to take, like if, there, if there's one Greek word, now all of you know agape, right? Love. So we're going to take that, and anytime that Greek word occurs, we're going to translate it with love. Love, 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 right? Well, you know that in language, uh, words don't always mean the same thing, do they? I learned this because I just went to the UK for two weeks. We both speak English in their country and our country. It's a different English. It's such, and I'm not even talking about the accents that's hard to get. It's a different English in that they make nouns into verbs. I, I had, I had a, I had a Coke bottle or something like that. And I said, what should I do with this? And he said, bin it. I said, what? Bin it. 
they take the word bin, which is a noun in our English, right? It's a container, and they turn it into a verb. Binning your trash means throw away the trash. And I could give you a dozen other examples like this where I'm going, okay, all right, sure, cool. Um, and, and so language is like that. And so if you say, oh, we're, we're following the Greek and Hebrew really closely by translating it accurately, that's actually misleading because a word might have different meanings in different contexts, and often they do. So again, is, is that good or bad? I don't know if it's good or bad. It's just the nature of a formal equivalent translation. So if you're using a formal equivalent translation, just know that's what they're trying to do and, and be aware of that. Okay. Now, the other sort of philosophy is what's called a dynamic equivalent. This is what we call a functional translation or a thought-for-thought translation. And the philosophy here is a little bit different. And David, you're the expert on this. You jump in and add anything you want to add. Um, But in the dynamic equivalent, the goal is to express the meaning of the original text in today's language. Um, And and some, some philosophies will actually say, we're trying to recreate the original in a way that would have the same impact in a modern culture that it had in the original culture. And so they're going to change some things, uh, not because they're trying to distort the word of God, but, but because they're trying to convey the meaning into our language in a more uh, faithful way. Um, so the strength is, you know, they're trying to get the meaning right in modern language The weakness is sometimes they can run the risk of distorting the text by moving too far away from the original wording and structure that we're left with something that's not quite like what the original actually said. So again, I'm I'm not presenting this as, you know, one is good, one is bad, one is better. One, I'm saying these are two different ways to translate it. They both have strengths and weaknesses. So my suggestion is, as you're reading your Bibles, read from both and compare and contrast. And that, that will move you toward meaning. We'll talk about what, when you're doing more in-depth Bible study, we'll talk about how we can use those um, as well. Okay. Now, one more thing here. And that is, you, you also need to be aware that the King James and New King James versions are based upon a less reliable Greek critical text. You say, what does that mean? King James Version, let me grab it here for you. Now, interesting, this looks nothing like the King James Bible that you can buy at Walmart, right? Uh, for one, it's just way too big. I mean, how do you fit that in a backpack? Uh, so, um, interesting, that, that's what the... That's what the front page looked like on the uh, 1611. That's a a very um, uh, accurate portrayal of the the, sort of the cover uh, page there um, with all this art. And it's really, there's a lot of symbology in here and anything. But um, so so the the point is, when this was commissioned in 1605 and then uh, printed in 1611, um, there there were a, a... a tradition of New Testament Greek manuscripts that were available to the translators to use. After the 17th century, uh, scholars discovered older and thus more reliable Greek manuscripts that went back a lot earlier, closer to the time that they were actually written, and thus less time for errors to come into play, uh, so that Modern versions, like the ones that you and I probably use, are based on a different Greek manuscript family that is uh, considered more accurate. So 
Why am I telling you that? Because sometimes you're going to read in the King James and New King James. We'll do this in a little bit. I'll, I'll do a little exercise together. And your, your NASB is going to say, da-da-da-da-da, uh, Jesus Christ. And then you're going to look at it in the King James, and it's going to say, Lord Jesus Christ. And you're going to say, why did my NASB cut out the word Lord? And there are some friends that uh, prefer the King James only that criticize modern versions because they say they're taking out words. Actually, it's the other way around. What's likely is the manuscripts that the King James were based on added words for the sake of uniformity so that every time Jesus was referenced, it was Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, whereas originally the Apostle Paul, whoever, was using some variety and he didn't always refer to Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ. It might be Jesus Christ or just Jesus or Christ. So... Um, so I say that just so you know, that's why there's some differences between the King James and New King James and uh, some of the modern versions there. So, Dave. Uh, I, I did quite an extensive study on that very question about the accuracy of the yep. text. Mm-hmm. And when you talk to, you have to be careful how you phrase that because you're, you tell a King James person that's not an accurate text or it's not very good or it's outdated. There's a lot of arguments for the newer text not Right. And one of the main arguments, the Trinitarian Society in England publishes a lot of stuff still to this day. And one of their major arguments against new, newer Greek text is that they dilute the doctrine of the Trinity sure. by the removal of, of a lot of right. those words that you're right. talking about. Right. So it's a very, it's a very emotional. I, pre- I appreciate that. Yeah, it is a very emotional thing. Yeah, don't go up, don't go up to your King James only friend and say, hey, you know, your Bible's not reliable. That's not a good approach. Um, if you're interested in this, there's a book by James White that you need to read called The King James Only Controversy. It's very fair, it's very accurate, and it's going to enlighten you if, if this has, uh, you know, sparked your interest. And Dave's right. It is very emotional. There's theological arguments, there's textual critical arguments, but um, uh, read that and, and, be kind to your King James only friend. Okay. Uh, okay. So two main types of Bible versions here. Um, and that leads us with, with that in mind, that's kind of the, the, the first part of what we want to talk about tonight and uh, be sure to avail yourself of the show and tell here. Um, so questions on that. that, that's kind of how we got the English Bible that we have today. And, and that, and knowing that's going to help you the reason I took the time to do that is that's going to help you avoid a lot of mistakes that people make when, when uh, uh, reading their Bibles, uh, knowing that it's a translation, uh, knowing that it comes from a tradition, uh, knowing that uh, what we're reading is, you know, the newest parts of it are 2,000 years old. Things like that are going to help you um, in reading more accurately and avoiding uh, errors here. Okay, so now I want to talk to you about sort of the interpretive journey. That is, what's the process that we're going to use to go from reading and interpreting to application? And this is uh, this is from the, the Grasping God's Word book, but uh, really the principles here are principles that Christians for generations have used and and um, uh, to faithfully uh, read and interpret Scripture. Okay, so l- look at this picture with me. Uh, let's say we've got a town over here and then we've got this river or maybe maybe it's not a river maybe it's a maybe it's a country border 
Maybe this is the difference between the U.S. and Canada or the U.S. and Mexico or, as I learned, the difference between like England and Scotland. Um, make sure you're careful with that, right? Um, I, uh, uh, Zippy um, uh, brought uh, Eric back a, uh, a football jersey, which for those of us in America is a soccer jersey. They, they call it a football top, actually. And uh, the family I was staying with, it was really interesting. He's, he's uh, Scottish and she's English. Both of them sound weird um, in different ways. And, uh, you know, you've heard a Scottish accent. It's, it's very different than an English accent. And, of course, you know, so we're going to the store to look for football tops. And, of course, there's, there's only one jersey. There, there's only one choice. This is not even something we have to think about. You get the Scottish football team. Well, the problem is if you go to a sports store in England looking for a Scottish football top, <laughs> you're not going to find one. <laughs> they got all the, yeah, they got Manchester City, Manchester Uni, and they've got Liverpool. They got all the, the English teams represented. Uh, but, you know, they're one United Kingdom, but they're vastly different cultures. Their accents are different. Their vocabulary is different. So, so picture you got two towns. They're neighbors, but they're completely different cultures. And they're separated by this river, but there's this bridge that goes from one to the other, okay? This picture is going to illustrate what we're trying to do in Bible translation, in, in Bible reading and interpretation. The town over here represents the biblical day, place, and time. This is, this is the, the culture of the Bible. This is the ancient Near East. This is, you know, um, Canaan or Jerusalem in the first century, right? This is the ancient Bible city. This over here represents our modern day American culture, okay? Uh, the culture of the Bible time is a very different time and place than the culture of our day. Does that make sense? And we're separated. What separates the biblical culture from modern-day American culture? Well, things like culture, language, time, their situation, right? All of those make it different. Uh, if I were to put a, a printed Greek Bible down in front of you and ask you to read, other than a few of you in the room, probably most of you couldn't do it because there's a language barrier between us today and what was the language of the time of Christ. So what does this represent? This represents a process of what we're going to try to do. The first thing we're going to try to do in Bible reading and interpretation is we have to understand the text in the biblical time and culture. We have to understand what the author meant to the audience that he was writing to originally, which was not Granbury, Texas, 2021 in English, right? Uh, this is before McDonald's was invented. I know that's hard to believe. Um, they didn't have McDonald's. And so we have to understand what did the Bible message mean to the original audience? That's the first question we ask as we're reading Scripture. What did the author mean to the audience he was writing to. Okay. From there, in order to do that, we have to say, well, what are some of the differences between the ancient culture 
and modern cultures. So that's where, in order to understand the text in their town, so to speak, we have to overcome these barriers of things like culture and language and time and situation. Uh, you know, you might uh, you might read in the Gospels where Jesus uh, was teaching to his disciples, and the Pharisees came up and rebuked him and says, uh, "Your disciples." Are, are not doing what's right because they're eating with unwashed hands. Now, when your mother told you that, when you were eight years old, what was she primarily concerned about? Germs, hygiene, cleanliness. When the Pharisees attacked Jesus in the first century for his disciples not eating with washed hands, were they thinking about hygiene? No, what were they thinking about? Ceremonial cleanliness, right? Uh, religious cleanliness. Well, how did you know that? What's that? Context, right? Maybe maybe we read something in Scripture about that. Or, or maybe there was some archaeological find or some extra-biblical study that helped bring some insight to you know, what, what that meant in that day. But that's an example of overcoming culture. Um, so culture, language, time, situation... Um, And then from that, we say, okay, now that we've understood the, um, what this meant, what the author meant to the audience, and we've overcome some of those, uh, barriers, now we want to ask, okay, how does what we're learning, the meaning, transfer over to us today? The principles, the truths about God that we learn, the truths about people that we learn, um, That's this principalizing bridge. Somehow we have to take what we learn, what the author meant, and we have to cross the bridge and say, what what is its relevance to us today? Okay? So with that sort of picture in mind, let's walk through each of these steps together. Okay? Step one is grasping the text in their own town. The question is, what did the text mean to the biblical audience? What a lot of us do when we're reading our Bibles is we're looking for what's the application to me? What, what's a little nugget I can take away today? That's the wrong place to start. Application is the last step. We have to figure out what did the author mean first, right? Make sense? Step two, we have to measure the width across the river. That is, what are the differences between the biblical audience and us? Things like language and, and culture and time and situation, customs, and whatnot. I, I, I was joking on Sunday. Uh, I, I kept waiting to wake up in the morning and come down to my English family I was staying with to hear top of the morning to you. And they never said it. They stayed I, in Ireland. I, I, well, and, and, okay, so yeah, so Irene knows this. I didn't know this. So I came down the next day. They wouldn't say that. I came down the next day. They didn't say that. And finally, you know, I, I, got, to, I got comfortable enough with them to ask dumb questions. And I said, um, does anybody say top of the morning? And my Scottish friend laughed in this Scottish way that I can't represent to you. And he said, oh, nobody, you know, nobody does that except proper, Eng- or pro- proper Irish folks or something like that. I'm like, oh, okay. I think he said posh Irish, Irish folks or something like that. So, uh, okay, we'll see. I, I didn't know that. That was, that was a, my misconception of their culture. So step two is saying, okay, what are the differences here? Um, uh, do we greet one another with a holy kiss? You're looking at me like, we're really going to go there, Keith? Yeah, we're going to go there. Uh, do we do that? Generally, we greet one another with a holy hug, 
or a holy handshake, right? And COVID, uh, a, a holy six-foot-away distance wave, right? Um, right? Step three is we cross the principalizing bridge. That is, we, having understood what the author meant and the differences between their culture and ours, we then say, what's the theological principle or main point in this text? What's the point? If you're reading the, the Joseph narrative, the goal of the story is to say, what's the point of the story? Right? What, what, what are we supposed to gain from this? What's the point? What, what's the truth? So we, we figure out what's the principle that we're supposed to gain or the main point. Step four then is we want to kind of consult. Um, we talk about scripture, interpreting scripture and things like that. How does the theological principle fit with the rest of the Bible? We want to make sure that, that what we think was a right interpretation, a right principle, we want to just kind of look around the, the biblical text and say, okay, am I on firm ground here? Is what I think this story means consistent with the rest of the Bible? And having checked it, we move on to step four, which is to ask how should individual Christians today live out the theological principles in their own town? Okay, does that make sense? It's, it's a nice little metaphor. It's not perfect, but, but it gives you an idea of what we're trying to do. When we're reading our Bible, we're trying to, excuse me, work through those steps together. Okay, yeah, Brianna? Where would the historical theology fit in these steps? Yeah, that, that's good. Exactly, yeah. So, so historical theology would be... Um, Duck. There we go. Okay. Okay. So we start with the text, right? What is the text itself? Our Bibles, right? And then we when we do the task of interpretation. That leads us then to extract these principles, right? The, the meaning. So from that, we, we, if we put all those together, we get, you know, the theology of the text, right? That's the principle. If we take, okay, what does the whole Bible say about that? We get to systematic theology. And this is usually where, where historical theology comes into play because... You know, we're working our way up, and this is where I think church history and historical theology comes into play. How did, how did Christians in the past understand it? How did they put it together? That interacts a bit with interpretation, but that, that usually comes in as you know, greater insight to the theology that we're learning and the systematizing of that. And then that leads, lastly, to psychology is what usually goes here. You know, we apply it, right? Well, no, we don't apply a theology. This is what's called practical theology or we might just theology there we go or we might just call this application so so brianna your historical theology usually comes in sort of this part of the equation so um that if we were if we were adding a, a broader um uh, sort, sort of tools to our tool belt in doing this, we would bring in historical theology there. But that's a great question. Okay, so um, 
So does that make sense? Just in terms of kind of a, a, a word picture, an analogy, and uh, it guides us through what we're trying to do. Um, if you do get the Grasping God's Word uh, book, it's gonna, that's the metaphor that they're going to use. But those are the steps we're going to look at there, okay? And again, it's not perfect. It, it's, a, it's a process. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like when I was trying to learn how to wakeboard, right? You watch the videos and, okay, do this, put your feet in, do that, wait for this you know, carving and knee, uh, uh, heels and toes and all that. And, and you get all that. And, and when you get out on the water, there's a sense in which all those things help you. But doing that all fluidly, doing it all naturally, getting more comfortable, going faster, learning to carve. Uh, Roger was helping me jump wakes last time. I didn't do very good. I wasn't a very good student that day. But, you know, that that's all part of it. And Bible reading is like that. This is a process, but learning Bible reading is is more of an art, more of something that you just keep building on and building on uh, throughout that, okay? So um, let's do some examples. Uh, So Drew, can I uh, steal the keyboard and mouse from you? Um, So so the first thing we're going to do, because again, we've talked and now you're going to do it, okay? Now we're going to do some examples here. Um, Thank you, sir. And um, if you could... Um, the website that I'm going to use, that uh, we'll do, we're going to do a whole session on using biblical, biblical study tools. And the website that I like, there's dozens of them out there, but the one I'm going to teach you and, uh, and hopefully is helpful to you is BibleHubHUB.com. How many of you heard of BibleHub before? Good. They've, they've got an app. They've got all sorts of stuff. And, you know, there's Bible Gateway. There's a Blue Letter Bible. There's all sorts of ones out there. But uh, Bible Hub, I like it because of some of the tools that are available in it that are different than, uh, than some of the others. So can you flip over to the website for me? Um, it's there. Oh, it's there. I gave my, my okay, so uh, what you're saying is no one's driving the car right now. Okay. Uh, okay, so we'll just do this. Let's end the show. And let's close that down. And did you bring up the web page already? Is that it? Oh, there it is. Okay. Okay, so this is Bible Hub, and uh, here's what I want you to do. Uh, we're going to type in, uh, I just started 1 Timothy, so let's do an example from 1 Timothy, okay? We're going to do this together. This is the part where you get to apply something of what you learned. So part of the reason for teaching you about the history behind the English Bible and different translation versions and modern versions and whatnot is as you're reading the Bible, remember, reading the Bible is the best thing you can do to learn it. The second best thing that you can do is compare translations. Look at it in different versions and look for the differences, look for the similarities. So we're going to do that. You say, how do I do that? Do I put six Bibles out on my kitchen table? Go for it. That would be awesome. Uh, maybe an easier way to do it is to use a tool like Bible Hub. And, and I hope that you'll be able to see this. There's no way you're going to see that. Uh, let's do this. Hang on. And unless unless you're sitting in the front row like Roger. Okay, is that better? You tell me when you can read it, okay? Can you read that? Okay, awesome. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to uh, type in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, I went to the wrong verse, verse 5, okay? Now, I want you to see if you do that, you can click on up here. Uh, the, see this 
where it says parallel right here? If you click on parallel, look at this. It gives you your verse in all sorts of different versions there. And for those of you that are multilingual, look at this. I mean, you could have a lot of fun, you know, all sorts. Of, okay. So, but for our purposes, we'll, we'll just use the parallel button. And what that's allowing you to do is look at your verse in parallel versions. And you can, uh, you can remove versions, you can add versions. So if you want to see, you know, particular versions, you can do that. So what I want you to do is looking at that verse. Is that still too small? I'm going to, there we go. Is that a little better? Okay. So, um, so we've got New International, New Living, English Standard. Th- those are, and then King James at the bottom. So we'll just look at those. Um, the Berean study and the Berean literal are, are not as common. But so go NIV, New Living, ESV, King James. So ESV and King James are going to be on the more formal equivalent. NIV is sort of in the middle. New Living is going to be more on the thought for thought. Now, what I want you to do is uh, take your notes and a pen, or you can do it on your iPad or whatever, and I want you to just look at that verse, and I want you to notice what are the similarities and what are the differences. Okay, so just take a minute to do that. We'll take a few minutes, and uh, you can work with a partner if you want to. Um, Give it a shot, and then we'll talk about it in a minute, okay? And feel free, if you have an iPad or a phone and you're just straining to look at that, pull it out on your phone. Uh, you can go to Bible Hub and, and do this on your phone if you want. Uh, just, just compare the similarities and differences between those versions there. Uh, uh, really, really just the top three. Um, you, you want to do King James. The, the Bereans are okay, but th- those are less common versions. They're good, but... Um, but just mainly the top three, and if you want to include the King James as well, you can do that. I'm not asking you for meaning. I'm just asking for you to notice differences and similarities. By not looking at the context of this verse, we really can't get an idea for the meaning in its proper proper context just looking at differences and similarities in the language and structure of the sentence okay well let's uh let's uh, share with one another here um what are some of the similarities that you see in those different versions there This is where you participate. Jump in the water with me here, okay? Put your board on and jump in. What's that? That love is the main command or thought of all three of those. Okay, yeah, right. So we see love, uh, love, love, right? Is Are there any of those versions that use a different word than love? Charity, which is what? Why might it use a different word? What's that? Charity means love. Okay. When you're doing something under somebody else, 
Okay. 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 Yeah, I, I mean, right now we're just noticing a difference. Um, one difference is that the King James Bible was translated in the 17th century. It's been updated many, many times, but it essentially retains a lot of the, the language. Thankfully, they updated the spelling. You ever looked, look at the spelling on the King James page over there. You'll, you'll struggle to read some of it because, you know, language changes. Why do all the modern versions use love and the 17th century version uses charity? Because we don't use charity in that way, at least as much as we would use the word love, right? So language changes. And, and that's why periodically new versions are necessary because language changes. Language is not static. Language is, is fluid in that way. Okay. Um, okay. What else? What else you notice? What are some similarities there? Okay. And interestingly enough, the New Living Translation that loves to change the structure for the sake of clarity essentially retains the same structure, doesn't it? So, so what does that tell you? If they're all sort of maintaining the same structure? Yeah, yeah. So that, that gives us a confidence as English readers that, that that's probably pretty much the way it is, right? You know, if we saw vast differences there, we might go, oh, maybe that's something we're studying a little more in detail to determine why is there some differences there. Okay. What else? What else? Similarities? What do you see there? Mm-hmm. So if I said to my kids, the purpose of our vacation is to have fun. You are going to have fun on vacation. That's our goal, right? Did I tell them two different things or the same thing? They're synonyms, synonyms, aren't they? Goal and purpose are are synonyms when used in that way, right? Okay. So, So looking at the variation there, those are terms that are synonyms of whatever the underlying uh, original word is there. The aim, the purpose, the goal. But looking at that, there's not, they're not really saying different things, are we? They're using different words to essentially say the same thing, the same idea. Um, there may be some nuances there, but um, it's good when we're seeing the same idea being communicated. Okay. Is that all believers in that case is not nothing like that is seen in any Okay. Okay. So since you brought it up, let's talk about some differences now. Um, that phrase, uh, the purpose of my instruction is that all believers um, that all believers doesn't appear in the NIV and the ESV and the Bereans and the King James, does it? So, why might they do that? Why did the, the New Living Translators do that, do you think? Yeah. Okay. Maybe just to, to clarify that the, the goal of our instruction 
for believers, right? Uh, who's who's? Yeah. It is an interpretation, isn't it? It's not a translation. Okay. They're, they're, they're going a little beyond translation. Okay. Beyond dynamic, I think, even. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and that, that's and that's that's exactly what that's exactly what dynamic equivalents do is they're, they're dynamic equivalents want to remove ambiguity for the sake of clarity, and often that's a helpful thing. But in order to do that, sometimes you're, you're over translating a bit to make sure that it's clear, and that does involve a, a bit more interpret, interpretation. Although, if you leave it the way the NIV or the English Standard has it. It's left then to the reader to say, well, who's he talking to? So, so either way, you've got to make an interpretation. You've you got, you got to ask that question. The, the NLT is just trying to make it a little easier for you in that way. It would be more clear, as you said, if you knew the context mm-hmm. that came before. Right. The all believers might be uh, clearly implied by what came before. Right. And I don't know that any of us would argue that he's not talking about all believers here. So we're not saying the NLT is wrong. What we're saying is that they've, they've translated beyond what was there for the sake of clarity, for the sake of, of removing any ambiguity. Yeah, and, and, and the purpose of this exercise, of course, is to just help you to see similarities and differences as you're comparing. We're not really looking for meaning. We're just looking for similarities and differences. Um, yeah, the Living Bible is is a true paraphrase. It's not it's not really a translation. Yes, yeah. So the Living Bible is a paraphrase. It's not a translation or a version. The New Living Translation is an actual translation. Yeah, yeah. That's not the Living Bible. Okay. Anything else? What what else is different there? Uh, looking at the NLT, there's another difference there that. Okay. Yeah, there's there's some different renderings there of of what kind of uh, what kind of faith we're talking about, right? Is it sincere faith, genuine faith, or or how, who who likes faith unfeigned? I like that. That sounds. Um, yeah. So there's some differences there. Mm-hmm. Right. And we choose the one we think expresses it the best, but it's still an opinion. Right. Yeah, and that, and that's that's what you're doing is is you're you're trying to pick the best, I guess, possible meaning for the context in that way. Okay. The other difference is that they, the New Living says that believers would be filled with love, which you don't necessarily get in the other ones. And I mean, is that a difference? Okay. They say that that the goal is love, so I don't know exactly how that love is being played out. Uh huh. Right. Mm hmm. That's correct. What else in terms of different? There's a difference in the NLT from all the other versions. I want you to find it. Okay. There we go. Did you catch that? So um, some say our, some say my. Why might that be? Some say this man, and some don't identify with the 
Mm-hmm. Okay. So what does that tell you? If you're just reading this in English. Yeah, you, you might want to look at that a little closer, right? Some say my, some say our, some avoid it altogether. Uh, probably if there was a pronoun in the Greek text, we wouldn't be having those differences, would we? Uh, language is one of those things, we all do it, where, where we say things, but we're implying things in what we're saying. We don't always spell things out, especially in Texas. We like, we like to reduce things down, you know? We don't say you all, because that takes way too much effort. We say y'all. I was, trying, I was sitting at the dinner table with this wonderful couple in the UK explaining southern vocabulary. Southern Grand, and, and they were just dying laughing. We had, we had such a great time. All y'all and y'all and so y'all can be singular or plural or sometimes all y'all is plural and, and they're, they're just rolling. They're just having a great time with all this. Um, right? So, so we imply things in what we say. And in this case, Paul was not explicit about whose instruction he was talking about. Uh, if we go back to the beginning of the letter, uh, Paul introduces himself. He's talking to Timothy. Um, so is it his instruction? Is, he, is it our instruction in terms of the apostles? Does it really matter? Right? Uh, but just at this point, noticing that there's differences there uh, in all of that. Okay? So um, we, we can do this all day, but, but this, this is the sort of thing, as you're starting to study the Bible, uh, what's the best thing you can do? Read it. Read it, read it, read it, read it. Second thing, maybe look at a couple different versions. Um, when, I, when I study scripture, I have multiple versions, multiple English versions there. And even, even if I'm doing translation from an original text, I have those English versions there so I can see, well, what did the NASB do? I have the New Living there. Uh, not, not because I agree with it all the time, but because it helps me to look at what I'm doing and to make sure that I'm asking the right questions. To make sure that I'm not missing anything there. Um, so again, the, the Bible Hub makes this very easy to do. And uh, so you can do this all day. So um, check that out. And so what we're going to do, for those of you that are going to take the plunge, right? Uh, um, and do this. There are going to be assignments each week. And the assignment this week... And since most of you don't have books yet, I'm just going to tell you what the assignment is, okay? Um, You're going to take at least five versions, five English versions, and you are going to uh, select a passage, and uh, you're going to mark or highlight the differences in those five translations and, and summarize what you what you find. I actually picked a verse. Do you want to pick your own verse or you want me to tell you what to do? <laughs> well, the, the, the passage that I thought would be really interesting, it's one that you're familiar with, but as you look at it in different versions, you're going to go, oh, oh, uh, is um, 1 John 
1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's just one verse, but it's long enough that I think it'll serve the purpose. 1 John 1.14, five versions, and then note... I'm sorry. Thank you. The Gospel of John. Yes. Thank you, Roger. Differences. Yeah, 114. Okay. And um, so that's your mission should you choose to accept it. Um, If you'd like to look at the book before you commit to buying it, look at the cheat sheet. Um, There's plenty of copies of, of this book over there. But uh, that's what we're doing, this kind of introduction, just kind of getting our feet wet uh, in comparative uh, Bible reading in terms of those different versions. And, um, okay? And uh, so I'm going to just pray, and then if you have questions, if you need to go, you can go. If you have questions, ask questions. Don't forget the show and tell over here. And um, there's uh, a couple hundred years of uh, uh, English Bible Church history represented over there. And for those of you that are really interested, I have some uh, German, some Luther German Bible pages, including one called the Gunwad Bible. Do you know what the Gunwad Bible was? Uh, what was it, Noah? Yeah, so, so one of the first versions printed on American soil was a Luther Bible in German. It was happening during the Revolutionary War, and the British soldiers would confiscate them and tear up the pages and use them as gunwadding in their muskets. So... Um, I'll put that one out so you guys can see it because that one has some historical significance. So, Okay, was this interesting? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, let me pray and then I'll, I'll love to take your question, okay? But there are others that may need to go. I don't want to uh, go past eight. So, uh, Lord, thank you for uh, time just to um, begin to uh, take this journey together of, of learning how to read and interpret Scripture. And we thank you for the gift of your word. Uh, we do thank you that it is a, a light to our feet, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path and uh, how we pray that you will grow us all in how we can read and understand it better. Um, thank you for our time together. Will you go ahead of us and, and bless our effort and might we know you more and, and grow to be more like Christ as we do. Uh, thank you uh, for your grace to us and thank you even just being reminded of the history that, that we have uh, such an incredible blessing and such a wonderful stewardship of of a bible that we have in a version we can read Uh, we uh, we're so thankful for that help us not to take that for granted in jesus name we pray amen